In the ninth century, one musical arrangement was banned to composers. It had many names. The diminished fifth, the tritone, the augmented fourth. Diabolus on musica. The devil in music. It's really a musical interval that spans three whole notes. It's also one of the most dissonant musical intervals out there. And if you're suddenly worried about hearing it, relax. Because you already have. It makes appearances all over the modern music landscape. Everyone from Metallica to Busta Rhymes to David Bowie has incorporated it. Even the South Park theme song makes use of it. Why? It's very useful. It conveys emotional unrest. The sensation that something is horribly wrong. You might even say it ushers doom into a piece of music, if only momentarily. It was banned because, when composing music, it's very difficult to incorporate the diminished fifth. At the time, nearly all music was written for a religious purpose, and this particular musical interval doesn't quite deliver the joy and comfort required. So composers were taught to work around it. However, when you call this musical interval the Devil's Triad, something truly fascinating happens. Suddenly, it has power. Real power. The logic dissipates, and all that remains is the idea that a piece of music isn't just a piece of music. I'm Heather Matthews, and this is The Divide. shown you meeting number one and started meeting number two. I've walked you through the Cheyenne Mountain Complex, and Adrian Fermi has walked you through the aftermath of, well, something. Something he clearly wants to undo. And he seems pretty convinced that it's not possible without my friend Stephen's help. So, before I play more of meeting number two for you, let's go back to the beginning. Way back back before Stephen or Adrian were a part of this. Back when Bert Reed and his dog, the Colonel, went wandering in the woods looking for little brown mushrooms. Bert told me that God had spoken to him. He said he'd been told, the magic number is three. Off the top, that's a ridiculous thing to say, right? But part of why it's ridiculous is, we already know that three is a special number. There's a reason there's three musketeers, three amigos, three stooges, three ninjas, three kings, three little pigs, and three men and a baby. It's Goldilocks and the three bears. How about three's company? Third time's a charm? And I don't mind one or two, but I much prefer to be three times a lady. But why exactly? To help me answer this question, I recently sat down with someone who might be able to make some sense of the cryptic message Mr. Reed says he received. I was joined in the studio by Professor Rosa Yang. She is an author and a professor of religious studies at George Washington University. Here's our chat. 
Mrs. Yang, thank you so much for joining me. No problem. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to start with a slightly obvious question. What is the significance of the number three in the Christian world? Oh boy, where to begin? (laughs) Well, you've got to start with the Holy Trinity. It's the belief that God doesn't have one form, but three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Well, let's take a closer look. Um, During the Last Supper, Jesus predicts that his apostle Peter will betray him three times. This comes to fruition, but only after Jesus prays three times in the Garden of Gethsemane and is arrested. Then, after Christ was crucified, darkness covered the land for three hours. (laughs) I'm noticing a trend. Oh, we're just getting started. How many days passed before Jesus rose from the dead? Three. How many men witnessed his resurrection at Mount Hermon? Three. Prior to all of this, during his time in the wilderness, how many times was Jesus tempted by the devil? Three. Three times. Three is everywhere in the Bible. Although there are different schools of thought, three is often biblically associated with completion and the divine. Okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. (laughs) (laughs) Could all these threes in the Bible simply be a coincidence? I'm saying, is it possible we're connecting dots so we see what we want to see? Hmm. It's really hard to ignore how common it is. And the Holy Trinity is a central tenet of Christendom. I'd argue it cements the number's significance. Okay, so now I have a question for you. What exactly is it that you're hoping to see in all of these threes? I'm sensing an agenda. That's a tough question. So I'm going to read you a sentence, and I'd love your reaction. Fire away. The magic number is three. Mm-hmm. Is this uh, what prompted you to reach out to me? Yes, actually. Does that sound like the ravings of a lunatic to you? Oh, far from it. Do you know what the strongest shape in geometry is? The triangle. We humans are trichromatic. That means that the colors we see come from three different types of cone cells in our eyes. Speaking of eyes, you've seen a 3D movie, right? Yes. That term, 3D, is referring to the fact that we see the world through three spatial dimensions. There may be more out there, but we only see three. And Christianity isn't the only religion in which three is so prominently featured. Buddhism has the three jewels. Taoism has the three treasures. According to Jewish mysticism, the soul is made up of three distinct parts. So no, I don't believe in magic, Miss Matthews, but I'm pretty convinced that the number three has a lot to say. Mrs. Yang, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Three is a magic number. Yes, it is. It's a magic number Somewhere in the ancient mystic trinity You get three as a magic number Speaking of Bert Reed, it's probably time I explain what he was doing while he was in the Marines. If you remember, he said he was stationed around Baghdad. After lots and lots of digging, I found his commanding officer, who offered me a response, but asked that I not use his name. He said, quote, 
Our unit was tasked with transporting various sensitive items and persons of interest to and from locations all over the Baghdad province. It often required quick thinking and serious poise under pressure. Corporal Reed was our renaissance man, our blue-chip Johnny on the spot. Some days, Reed was a mechanic. Other days, he was a hustler. Once, I watched him talk his way out of the worst corridor of the city with nothing but a box full of cheap sunglasses. He just walked along, cracking jokes and giving them away. It sounds crazy, but it worked. He saved my life more than once. And I know I'm not alone on that count. That's why I recommended him for a silver star. Have him show it to you sometime. Unquote. Bert had called what he did garbage man stuff. A Marine who talked to God. A music professor who was held at knife point. An astrophysicist who somehow doesn't exist. Whatever is happening at the site north of Cheyenne Mountain, I could feel it getting its hooks in me and slowly lulling me under its spell. I'd close my eyes and try to imagine it, what Bert Reed saw up in the mountains. The tones, then facing a wall of blinding light, the terror, and the unmistakable desire to get closer, to peek behind the hospital curtain. Midway through meeting number two, Stephen offered Adrian his support, although what that entails isn't exactly clear. Then, they set out to explore the site where he awoke on the side of the road. Okay, let's get back to it. Addendum and notes. The date is November 21st, 2017. It's 9.21 a.m. We have recovered Dr. Adrian Fermi's quote-unquote kit. It is a metal box, approximately the size of a, well, a car battery. All the gauges are broken. It appears to have been intended to measure air pressure, ionization, radiation, and um, something else. Look closer. Ah, okay. It's a compass. Also destroyed. We've also located Dr. Fermi's suit, which, for all intents and purposes, resembles NASA's designs. It appears built for space, complete with life support and a temperature control unit. Like the kit, all screens and hardware have sustained damage, but the suit is intact. Any theories on how all this was destroyed? Well, uh, first, this could no longer be ignored. What's the deal with the tapes? You know digital recorders have been around a while now, right? Yeah, leave my system alone. Explain the suit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the suit is designed for the vacuum of space, and no, I can't explain the damage. All I can tell you is an inorganic material doesn't fare as well as living things. What about the bird? Philip? He didn't make it, right? Although he didn't find his remains. Best as I can guess, he couldn't handle the journey. Too long, too painful. There you go with those riddles again. <laughs> I know, I sound like an asshole, but these are the clearest and most precise answers of God. I, I have no data for you, just my experience. You mentioned part of that while we were by McGrath Avenue. 
collecting data. Can you repeat what you said? For the record? The test? Yes, please. Sure. Uh, we started with tactical surveillance robots. Uh, they are designed to set off bombs, right? We retrofitted them to measure the environment they were entering. Go on. There's just one problem. Nothing happened. When we sent the bots through the wall of light, they measured an immediate drop in ionization. But like my suit here, the hardware almost immediately started breaking down. However, they came out clean on the other side. As bad as I felt for Philip, we owe that bird a lot. And why is that? When we sent Philip through, he disappeared. About this bird, Philip, the one that died and seemingly came back to life. What could kill a bird that a person could survive? Well, all kinds of things, really. And let's not forget Dr. Fermi was wearing a suit. A suit that was apparently pretty heavily damaged. Ionization is when molecules become electrically charged and matter is transferred into energy. A drop in ionization would mean that energy was being displaced. A lot of energy. But that hardly explains what's occurring here. And remember, Adrian had said that they determined the light was coming from two separate sources down in the mountain. What are those two separate sources? Some type of military equipment? And why wouldn't Cheyenne Mountain provide them with any answers? How infuriating it must be to know you're being watched and not helped. And then there's Building 12. And then he appeared on the side of McGrath Avenue. That's right. Dead. And, and now he's chirping away down the hall. I'd recognize him anywhere. Tell me something. I want to know what happened to you outside Building 12 during your tour of the complex. I'm not ready to talk about that. That's an obnoxious answer. This from the grandmaster of obnoxious answers. You know, this trust thing is a two-way street. Knock it off. I'm formulating a theory and it's not quite there yet. All right. I'll tell you how I remember it. One morning in early October, I awoke to find a note taped to the bathroom mirror in my home. I took it down before my family saw it. It only had one phrase written on it. Building 12. Someone was trying to help us. And, I believe, warn us. After three days, during which I had about four panic attacks, I finally told you I'd received the note. I said I'd found it on my car. I didn't tell you, or the NSA, or the Air Force the truth because I was afraid we'd be shut down. Sometimes they were just itching to pull the plug. So we set about trying to get a tour. But no matter what we tried, we arrived at dead end after dead end. Then that Corporal Tarrington came along. Suddenly, we had a possible inn. We met at Horsel's, and that's where you told me the good news. I got good and hammered, and then you broke the bad news. They'd only give one of us a tour. 
we immediately decided it should be you. You're more observant, you take better notes. I'm all over the place compared to you. Anyway, the next day you took the tour. When you got back, you tell me what you saw. You said that when you arrived at Building 12, it was clearly marked beside a locked steel door. You asked your guide to see the project. They said it wasn't possible. You asked for information. They stonewalled you. But before the Jeep continued, you said a call came in on your guide's radio and he had to step away to answer it. It was just the two of you. So you quickly crept off the Jeep and put your ear to the door. You said you didn't hear anything. You really didn't tell that to anyone? No. I told you. I didn't. And... Really, that's not what happened. Not exactly. After first hearing this, I tried to talk to Corporal Tarrington about it. He hung up on me. It's about time I tell you something. About a week after my first call with Bert Reed, I called him again to follow up. I had so many more questions to ask. About Cheyenne Mountain, about Baghdad, about him. An older woman answered the phone. She sounded sick. I soon discovered that it was his former mother-in-law. She doesn't want me to use her name and she refused to be recorded, but she did talk to me. She told me Bert has disappeared. His truck was discovered abandoned on the edge of town. It was unlocked and the keys were still in the ignition. Had the authorities Bert spoke of returned? Or has he crossed the divide as well? She sobbed when she told me this. She said her grandkids need their father. I agreed. I was racked with guilt when I got off the phone with her. Was I responsible for what happened to him? Next came the sleepless nights. Should I be concerned for my safety too? As for meeting number two, this is when that hospital curtain is torn away. What do you mean, not exactly? I mean that's very nearly what happened. So, what did you leave out? I told you. I'm putting together a theory. I need a little more time. Jesus Christ. Well? Well what? Tell me what came next. After Philip disappeared through the light. I seem to be doing all the talking here. Have you noticed that? When Philip disappeared, we went nuts. As any sane person would after watching a bird dematerialize in front of them. On the other side was an empty cage. The next obvious step was to send someone through. But we were nowhere near ready, and we knew the military probably wouldn't let us go through with it anyway. So we said the hell with them. We'll do it before they could stop us. I volunteered, and you didn't have a problem with that. Implying what exactly? Nothing. I just noticed that you're not all that into field work. Field work? I'd hardly call what you did field work. 
On the day I planned to do it, I went home and ate dinner with Sam and Penelope first, like I usually did before going to the site. It was some casserole he was trying out. (laughs) Obviously, I couldn't tell them what we had intended to do. But I remember all these desperate silences. I know that stepping through the light without the slightest idea what would happen was reckless and irresponsible. But I also knew I had to do it. So, we set up at the site at 10. We were still messing with the damn suit even then. Then came the tones, setting me on edge like usual. Then came the light. We had come to believe that the lights and tones created a temporal field that altered time. So the entire team believed I'd be back shortly, but possibly displaced a bit. Sounds airtight. Every day we had a different theory, a different angle. We were grasping at straws because we all knew I was going to go through anyway. Tell me why. In life, you don't really take much with you, do you? Not really. Your body friends and family if you're lucky, your beliefs and values. But clothes, cars, houses, jobs, dinner parties, all that very small talk. Experiences. To see and touch and remember you were there. Up until then I'd never done anything to write home about. And those tones, they were calling my name. All right. And then what happened next? And then I sealed the suit and walked through. The Divide is an alternate Thursdays production. It is directed by Scott William Baumgartner and produced by Vic Singh. Script supervision by Louis Rigolosi and Kamala Kirk. Narration by yours truly.